have an anchor that keeps... Spiritual Sword Media presents The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. We're going to be looking today at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. What we want to talk about today really relates to the human heart. The theme of our study, the heart of the matter. When you look at this theme on the surface, there are probably any number of ways, directions you could go. But what I want to focus on for the next few moments has to do with repentance. Turning to God. Because you see, repentance involves the heart of mankind. You have to have a genuine, honest heart to turn to God. And so we're going to talk for a moment or two about the heart of the matter. And the first thing I want to call your attention to is the design of repentance. What is the design of repentance? Why would God in heaven be concerned about men and women turning to him through this act known as repentance. Well, let me just sum it up and say that repentance ultimately leads to deliverance from sin. There are some things that I want to call your attention to as we consider this idea for just a moment or two. First of all, I want to introduce you to the character of God and repentance. And again, we ask the question, why would God, why would God design repentance for the benefit of mankind? Well, the answer is that repentance is the gateway to salvation. In other words, it is that bridge that will ultimately lead us to God. Well, what about the character of God? The Bible tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans 3, verse 23. In that same chapter, the apostle Paul would say, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, when you begin to look at the character of God, God understands that as members of the human family, that we have fallen short of his will. The word sin literally means a missing of the mark. John identifies sin as a transgression of the law in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. Well, what about this idea of sin? And what about how sin relates to the human family in light of the character of God? Here's the point you need to understand. The Bible tells us God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is interested in you, individually speaking. We can go back and we can look at the scriptures from cover to cover, and there are a number of things that ought to be, I guess, examined in light of repentance. God has demonstrated his concern for the, for the human family in a number of ways. And over and over again, the Bible reinforces to us his tremendous love, his desire for us to be in a covenant relationship with him. We know that sin comes between us and God. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 that sin separates us from God. Well, what about the character of God? 
Well, the Bible tells us God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Romans chapter 2, the apostle Paul identifies the state of the Jewish world. In chapter 1, he summed up the Gentile world as being in sin. In chapter 2, the verdict was simply the Jewish world, they too were in sin. But he talks about the goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering of God in verse four. And here's what he said, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance. God is interested in you as an individual. God wants you to be saved. Now sometimes we ask the question, why would the Lord delay his coming? We know that the Bible teaches us that the Lord Jesus Christ will one day come again. Jesus himself said, of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only, in Matthew chapter 24. Well, here's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Every day that the Lord delays his coming is, a, is an opportunity for mankind to turn to him through repentance. Well, the character of God is such that he has each of us in mind. He wants us to be saved. But there's a second thing I want you to consider with me. And this has to do with the command of God to repent. All throughout the Bible, you will see exhortations to the human family to repent. First of all, we think about the command to repent on an individual basis. A good example would be Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8. Simon, as you well know, had sought to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so it was said to him by the apostle in the long ago to repent of his wickedness. Here was an individual statement made to someone who had violated the will of God and thus needed to what? To repent, to turn to God. Individually, we understand that there's a command for all men to repent. Those who have never obeyed the gospel before being baptized into Christ, they are to repent of sin. That means they are to change their ways, to amend their ways. A good definition of repentance would be if you're going in the direction of south, you turn and go north. Well, that's repentance. It involves a 180, a 180 degree turn. So, individually speaking, those who have never obeyed the gospel, they are commanded to what? Put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They have to believe that he is the divine Son of God, that he came forth from Almighty God, that he is the only begotten Son of God. Then they must repent. Jesus said, except you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Acts 2, verse 38, we read of the apostle Peter preaching on Pentecost Day. Multitudes of people were present in the city of Jerusalem. They were there to observe Pentecost. And on that day, Peter preached the first gospel sermon and he instructed those people to repent and be baptized. And so, here are individuals, they believe the Son of God, they believe that he is the divine Son of God, they repent of their sins, they confess his name before others, and then they are immersed in a watery grave of baptism. So, the command of God to repent, it applies to those of us individually. In Acts chapter 17, when the apostle Paul stood before those people in Athens, Greece, and if you want to find 
a city filled with intellectuals than you could have in the first century gone to Athens. We read of those great philosophers that spent their time in that city. And they talked about, no doubt, some of the great subjects of their day. We read of those Epicureans and the Stoics. Well, Paul used the cosmological argument because those people were steeped in idolatry. And he talked about how God is the one who framed the world, that God made of one blood all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. But down in verse 30, here's what the apostle Paul said to those people living in Athens. He said, the times of ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. And so, again, this idea of repentance, it applies to those of us individually. All men everywhere are commanded to repent. Why? Because God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed inasmuch as he has given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Now, let me just make this observation very quickly. When you look at the ministry of John the Baptist, John came on the scene preaching a message of what? Of repentance. In Matthew chapter three, verses one and two, when Jesus began his public ministry, he called on men and women to do what? To repent, according to Matthew chapter four, verse 17. Over and over again, we see this command to repent. Now, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, you'll see that the nation of Israel, that they were encouraged to repent from time to time. A good example of this would be in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, when God in the long ago said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then he would have forgiven them. Jonah in the long ago was instructed to go to the city of Nineveh and to cry against that city because of their wickedness. And ultimately the goal was that they would repent. Why? So that they would enjoy the blessings of Almighty God. And so we talk about the character of God and repentance, the command to repent. But what about the compassion of God as it relates to repentance? Again, we think about the character of God. Did you know that when people repent, when they turn to God, that they can find compassion? Let me give you a good example of this. In Luke 15, we read about the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son asked his father for his inheritance? And Jesus, in his narration of that story, talks about how this young man went out into a far country and there wasted everything with riotous or profligate living. He went out and literally blew everything that had been entrusted into his care. Well, he came to himself, according to verse 17. He'd been out feeding with the hogs. Life had become rough, as we say. I think about a young man that went out hoping to find happiness and success and fortune, and what did he find? Heartache and sorrow. And so Jesus said he came to himself, and he said, how many hired servants have my Father, and bread enough to spare, and I perish here with hunger. This will I do. I will arise and go to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And so he makes that journey home. And Jesus said that when his father saw him, what happened? 
He had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. When you and I turn to God, let's say we've never obeyed the gospel. In simple trusting faith, we believe he is the son of God, that is Jesus is the son of God. We repent of our sins, we confess his name, we're baptized into Christ. What can we expect from a gracious God in heaven? Compassion. Let me tell you what, there are a lot of people in our world, they have the idea that if they engage in certain kinds of behavior that God is no longer interested in them. There are some people that have the idea that they are beyond the scope of forgiveness. That's not true. Individuals who turn to God, who've never obeyed the gospel, when they obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are ushered into a new relationship. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Here were individuals who were living in fornication, adultery, idolatry, homosexuality, drunkenness, thievery. And Paul said very plainly, such were some of you, but you were washed. Their washing, no doubt, proceeded by repentance. And then I think about individuals who are a part of the body of Christ who leave the Lord, who go back into the world, who engage in behavior unbecoming of a child of God. Is there hope for them? Well, some people would say, absolutely not. There are some people that would no doubt kick a person like that to the curb, but that's not what God does. As a matter of fact, when you read Luke 15, I think you have a template for how God views the sinner who comes home. And God has compassion on that person. And I would also add to this idea cheerfulness on the part of God in light of repentance. Because if you look at Luke 15 and you think about the prodigal son, when he came home, his father did what? He had compassion on him. He ran, fell on his neck and kissed him. And he said, bring forth the fatted calf put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet. For this my son was lost and is found, he was dead and is alive and they began to be merry. In Luke 15, when Jesus presents two other parables preceding the parable of the prodigal son, one of those parables has to do with a woman that had 10 coins, she lost one coin. She sought diligently for that coin. When she found it, she was extremely happy. And Jesus said, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Don't you ever think for a minute that you're not valuable in the eyes of God. God values you as a human being. God is interested in you. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, having said that, look if you would at verse nine very quickly. When Paul writes to the church at Corinth, he said, you were made sorry sorry, in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing for godly sorrow produces repentance to what? To salvation. If somebody's never obeyed the gospel and they turn to God through repentance and baptism into Christ, what do they enjoy? Salvation. If somebody is an erring child of God, they've wandered away from the fold of God, they're not living as they should, when they turn to God, what do they experience? Salvation again. 
The song that we sang a moment ago, chords that were broken will vibrate once more, ushered back into fellowship with Jehovah God. We are right with God. We have peace with God. What a great feeling. But now, let me talk to you for a moment or two about the danger of impenitence. We think about the design of repentance, and there is a divine design. But what about the danger of an impenitent heart? Well, let me suggest first of all that there is the danger of living, but in a real sense, spiritually speaking, being dead. We talk about being dead in sin. And here's what I want you to see for just a moment or two. The longer you, or me for that matter, the longer we choose to live in sin, the more difficult it becomes to find ourselves spiritually and to find our way out of that maze. There are a lot of people in our world today, they have literally been webbed in by a life of sin. Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter two, those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Here's somebody who is a prisoner of Satan. And so there are a lot of people in our world today, they're alive physically speaking, but spiritually they are dead. They are in a spiritual cemetery, if you please. Now, what do I mean when I say the longer you choose to live in sin, the more difficult it is to find your, to find your way out of that life, that lifestyle. Let me give you a couple of observations. Number one, it will rob you of a happy heart. There are a lot of people in our world today that feel the pain and the anguish of sin. And really, their lives are not what they ought to be, and they have what we would describe as a hurting heart. A hurting heart is hurting because of the weight of sin. Now, there are a couple of ways that you and I can deal with sin. One, we can deal with it the way God wants us to deal with it. The other way is to do like the world does. Look, if you would, at verse 10. In verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul said, Godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world. When we talk about hurting hearts, we're talking about individuals who are bearing the brunt of sin and unrighteousness in their lives. They are weighed down by the enormity of guilt. And if you don't think that people are living in our world today in guilt, you just pull up in front of a liquor store and watch the number of people that go in and out of that liquor store trying to self-medicate what we call, what the Bible calls sin. You look at the number of people that are going to these pill dispensers these doctors, and they're looking for some kind of narcotic, they're looking for some kind of drug to ease their pain. Let me tell you what, you're not gonna find relief 
from sin in a bottle of alcohol or in any kind of drug. It's not there. There may be people in the world that have the idea it's there, but it is not there. Let me add to this another dimension. Let me add this dimension. We talk about hurting hearts. Genuine repentance involves a lifestyle change. Paul here talks about the sorrow of the world. There are some people that engage in certain kinds of behavior that is not condoned in scripture and they have a hurting heart. They grieve. They are remorseful over what they've done. But really their grief, their remorse is not motivated by godly sorrow, but rather it is because they have been caught with their hand in the cookie jar, if you know what I'm saying. They're remorseful over what they've done because other people know about it or because they're feeling pressure externally speaking. And so again, they're bearing this guilt and guilt will eat you alive. Now let me give you a second problem associated with living in sin. It's called a haughty heart. The longer people choose to live in sin, the more emboldened they become in many respects. The wise man said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Sometimes it's difficult for us to admit we have made mistakes. Sometimes individuals, when confronted with their mistakes, when confronted with their errors, bow up. And rather than having a humble, godly heart that motivates them to repentance, they just refuse. They say, I'm not going to admit what I've done was wrong. I'm not going to acknowledge my shortcomings, my failures. Well, the wise man said, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof, the ends thereof are the ways of death. Let me give you a good example of somebody who demonstrated a humble heart as opposed to a haughty heart. You remember when David was taken in adultery in 2 Samuel chapter 12? Nathan the prophet came on the scene. What did Nathan say unto David? Well, Nathan told him a parable. And in that parable, David got a glimpse of what was wrong in his life. David realized, look, that, that light went off. And so David said, I have sinned. That is humility. Someone has said in days gone by that a king in that position could have easily severed the head of Nathan. He didn't do that. Sometimes we persecute the messenger. Well, that's, not, that's not the answer. Let me give you very quickly a third characteristic associated with living in sin and the danger of living an impenitent life. It's called a hard heart. We talk about the heart of the matter. Repentance involves what? It involves the heart. Godly sorrow leads to what? Leads to repentance. What's the danger of digging in and saying, I'm not going to admit I've done wrong. I'm not going to come clean with what I've done. 
What's the danger of refusing to submit to the will of God? A hard heart. In Hebrews chapter three, the writer said, take heed, brethren, lest there, be, lest there happily be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But, ex but exhort one another daily, so long as it is called today, lest you be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. There is a correlation in somebody, there is a correlation in the life of someone who chooses to live in sin and the hardening of his or her heart. The longer you live in a certain lifestyle, the, the more difficult it becomes to extract yourself out of that way of life. It is a fact. In Ephesians chapter four, Paul talks about the Gentile world. And in about verse 17, he talks about the hardness of their heart. In verse 18, he said, who being past feeling." have given themselves over to licentiousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. What is Paul saying there? He is saying that here are some people, they have become so brazen in their lifestyle, they have become so emboldened in the way they are, they are living, they're past feeling. You can't move them to repentance. I would say this to people who are unfaithful, to people who have never obeyed the gospel, don't go too far and don't stay too long. There is danger in living a life of sin. In Romans chapter two, again, Paul talks about the Jews and he speaks of their hard hearts he said, but after the hardness, after your hardness and your impenitent heart, he said, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. What was Paul saying there? He's saying the, law, the longer you choose to live a life of sin, the longer you choose to ignore my will, guess what? You're just treasuring up for yourself wrath. So the gateway to God is what? It's through repentance. Very quickly, let me close by saying this. We talk about people who are dead in sin, but what about dying in sin? Here's the real danger. When people choose to live a life of impenitence, when they, when they say no to the gospel of Almighty God, when they say no to coming home, they are endangering their soul. I want you to think with me for just a, a moment or two about the tragedy of dying in a lost condition. Could you in some way verbalize the real tragedy of that? I'm not sure that the human vocabulary can adequately express what it means to die outside of Christ. I promise you, that we could bankrupt the human language and never come close to letting people know what it means to die outside the Lord. And you talk about the danger of an impenitent heart. I wonder how many members of the body of Christ are in eternity as we speak. They never in their wildest dreams imagined 
having a car wreck. They never thought about having a massive heart attack. They never thought that stroke would, ha would have happened to them. They never thought that while cleaning out the gutters, they would have fallen from the roof and been killed. You see, they intended to get right with God. The only problem, they're in eternity now. Their chances are over. And then there are people that have never obeyed the gospel. They think time is on their side. I wonder where they got that idea. Solomon said, boast not of tomorrow. Who knows what a day will bring forth? You and I, we do not know what looms on tomorrow, but we know this. One day we will stand on the shores of eternity forevermore. If we don't obey the gospel, we have no hope. Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, those who are outside of Christ, they have no hope. They're without God in this world. I would beg you today, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, come home. Come home today. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again and to see video archives, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love.